Well, good morning. Great to see you guys today. Um, this is an exciting time for the church. I mean, we're so thrilled to have, have you guys part of the ECC family. Um, I was, as I said, at the 9 o'clock or uh, 9.15 service. Um, we can't always promise that our series will coordinate with all incoming staff. Um, but this time it did. So we were really excited about that. Um, <laughs> today, what we're going to do, if you haven't already uh, been a part of things for a while, we're, we're in a series about where we're going through the book of Daniel. And today we're going to focus on, on chapters 10 and 11. We'll get a running start at it, but we're going to focus most of our time today in chapters 10 and 11. And my preparation for this week brought me back to a conversation that I had with a guy named Floyd. Floyd Alwyn, back from my days at uh, First United Methodist in New Ulm, Minnesota. How many of you have ever been to or through New Ulm, Minnesota? Many of you have? All right, well, I was at the church right at the center of town. Center and Broadway, right there, that intersection, that was my church, First United Methodist. And I was remembering a conversation I had with Floyd Alwyn in the lobby not long after I arrived there. I arrived there at a really tough time for the church because they had just lost their senior pastor and their youth director, which meant that this little church only had two people on staff, Lois the secretary and Eldon the janitor, and their combined ages were about 370 or something like that. And so here comes this right out of college, 22-year-old, knows everything youth director. And, uh, and they had high hopes for this, this kid. And, and so I'm having this conversation with Floyd not long after I got there. And 70-something Floyd, and his eyes are just sparkling. Because this was a congregation that loved the Lord, and they loved teenagers. And they were saying, let's go for it, you know. And, and so Floyd and I were talking, and he was just talking about Jesus and how important it was for us to tell these kids about Jesus. And as we're talking, we got towards the end of the conversation, and he looks at me, and his eyes were already sparkling because he was talking about Jesus. But he gave me this wink and this smile as he said something to the effect of, and we both know that Jesus is coming back. And I was so struck by that conversation because I had never had a conversation with anybody. I had been around churches all my life. But I had never had a conversation with anybody where when I was talking to this person, they were talking about the second coming of Jesus as if it was really going to happen for one. And two, this was something he was longing for. This wasn't something that was like church doctrine. Let's talk about the theory behind Jesus coming back. I had a bunch of those discussions, right? And I'd studied some of those things. Um, you know, numbers of the beasts and antichrists and tribulations and millenniums and all this. When does it fit? Theoretically, I'd had these discussions, but this is the first time that I was in a conversation with somebody and his eyes are sparkling because he's longing for this day when Jesus will come back. And so there's a question I'd like us to start out with here as we start this journey into Daniel chapter 10 and 11. Are you longing for Christ's return? Are you longing for this day when Jesus will come back? And if we stick to the well-worn pathways of suburbia, we might never ask that question or, or never have that longing. Let me explain why I think that is. When things are going well in the suburbs or going well in the city or going well in the country, when things are going well, we're experiencing glimpses of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're free to worship God. We're surrounded by beauty and creativity. We have access to food and water. 
We, have, we feel safe in our homes and safe when we're going about our day. When things are going well in the suburbs or country or in the city, we're free to pursue meaningful work and good relationships. We have access to health care and justice and countless opportunities. And aren't those some of the very things that we'll experience in eternity, but not in a fallen state? So when life is going well, we can forget that this existence is not our final state. And we can get so comfortable here that we don't think about And we don't long for something different until something happens that reminds us that this is a broken world. You know, Brandon had mentioned that we've had two groups come back from Mexico. What a great reminder, you know, what a a great eye opener to how blessed we are, at least most of us here um, where we live. We have a real partnership with this children's home. And so many of us have real relationships with these folks. And I left on a Thursday, but that Wednesday before I left, I was having a conversation with Carla. Carla's the mom of the two kids we've been sponsoring for years. And we were having this great conversation because her oldest daughter is the same age as my oldest daughter. And it was just like we're talking to a neighbor, right? Because they're dealing with a lot of the same things that we're dealing with in the Stadensky household. Well, but there was a huge difference because Carla, she works in one of the factories there where she makes $8 a day, not an hour, Carla makes $8 a day. That's the average minimum daily wage. And that struck me so much because the very next day, Thursday, we're going to the airport and I'm in a van with um, a guy's name is Adam. He's the director at the home and we're taking Adam. He's taking us to the airport. Our family goes with Adam. We treat him to Whataburger. Got to have Whataburger when you're in El Paso, right? But, But we got the receipt and I looked at the receipt and it was $48. And I was thinking, Carla, that would be a week a week's salary, we just spent at a fast food restaurant. We just spent what she's going to make in a week. Can you imagine trying to raise your family on $8 a day? And so you get these glimpses every once in a while, if we get off the well-worn pathways of suburbia, we get a glimpse into the fact that this is a world where there's some real needs all around us. One of the fears when evangelicals, when they theoretically think of the end times, one of the fears is, oh, we might have to go through this great tribulation. May I present to you for millions of people alive today, and I don't want to take anything away from a great tribulation to come, but for millions of people alive today, tribulation isn't something that they hope to escape by means of rapture. For many people, that's their daily reality. And it takes a lot of different forms. It takes the form of extreme poverty. It takes the form of disease. It takes the form of terror. It takes the form of human trafficking. It takes the form of religious persecution. It takes the form of genocide. For a lot of people, their, their existence feels like tribulation. And it's been 25 years since my conversation with Floyd, and it seems like almost every year that passes, the more I long for Jesus to come back and to make things right in this broken world. This is a world that is filled with so many great things, but it's filled with a whole lot of people who are lonely. And in the age to come, there will be no more loneliness. In fact, community is going to be so amazing that marriage itself will be a shadow of a former age. That's how amazing community is going to be. In the age to come, there won't be people that exploit base desires for profit. There won't be companies who irresponsibly feed desires that can't ever be satisfied by the products they push. 
In the age to come, there will be rest. There will be meaningful work. There will be no bosses or warlords or dictators who lord their authority over others. In the age to come, our ethnic diversity won't divide us. It'll be something we celebrate as every tongue, every tribe, every nation glorifies God. Won't that be a beautiful thing? In the age to come, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more disease, there will be no more terror, no more injustice, no more tragic accidents, no more death. Does anyone else long for a world like that? I long for a world like that. All right, what does this have to do with Daniel? What does it have to do with Daniel? Let's get a running start. Last week, we spent some time in 8, 7, 9. Let's take a look at one verse from 9, and then we'll move into 10 and 11. Here's the verse I want us to look at because it picks up on this theme of longing. Um, One of the verses we looked at last week was uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 19. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 19. And as we're turning there, I want to let you know, if, we don't, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. There's so much in there. Um, we'd love for you to have one. We keep stacks at, oh, are we out on this table? Can we make sure that uh, if you don't have a Bible, check that table. That is awesome. I love that we ran out because they were there at the first service. That's great. So take a Bible. If you don't see one at that table or that table, let us know and we'll get you, we'll get you a Bible for sure. That's great. I love when we run out of Bibles. For real. I love when we run out of Bibles. All right. So, Here's what it says, Daniel chapter 9. And what's happening here, the context for this is interesting. Daniel is reading one of the ancient works, documents that now is in our Bible. He was reading from Jeremiah. And in this passage he's reading from Jeremiah, Jeremiah is, is speaking of an age to come. And so Daniel is reading of this age to come, and he, he, he just blurts this out. He says, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. And then he says this. Delay not. Delay not. For your own sake, O Lord, my God, your city, your people were called by your name. This morning, I want to invite all of us to consider joining with faithful followers of Jesus who have been praying these words with expectancy. Delay not. Now, one of the reasons we can have hope as we pray that prayer is what we're going to look at and see in Daniel 10 and 11. Why do we have hope? We have hope because our God is a great God. And our God, there's a place to write this in your notes. Our God is king over what is seen and what is unseen and what is yet to be seen. The portrait of God that's painted in the book of Daniel is a God who is king over all that is seen, over all that is unseen and yet to be seen. And the scene is where we've been. We've, We've done a lot of the scene stuff already in this series. We've already seen in in the opening chapters of of Daniel that God is a God who can rescue people from fiery furnaces. He can shut the mouths of lions. He can even set up and remove kings. God is a God over what is seen. But that is not the full extent of his reign. And that's what we're going to see right now in chapter 10. Let's take a look at this unseen piece. Chapter 10 gives us a glimpse behind the curtain here to the realm of the unseen, into the spiritual realm. So, if you dare, let's take a look here. Daniel chapter 10. This is some interesting stuff. Daniel 10, verse 1. And this grounds it in history. What's happening right now is Daniel is making itself testable, right? He's he's grounding this in history. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 says this. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel about these unseen things, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true. It was a great conflict. All right. What's happening right now, starting in verse 10, 
to the end of the book. The, the book is 12 chapters long. From now until the end of the book, there's one vision that's unfolding to Daniel. And it's coming through this, um, this spiritual being that just leaves Daniel breathless. This, this awe-inspiring spiritual being reveals himself to Daniel in what Daniel says is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you go to the history books, you're going to find that the third year is not the third chronological year of Cyrus's reign. Cyrus had already been empire, emperor of Persia or the ruler over Persia for more time than this. Daniel's using the reference point of the fall of Babylon. So this is the third year after the fall of Babylon when the Persians took over Babylon, all right? So third year, this is what's happening, all right? This is what we're looking at. Now, this is the third year. I want to show you something. If you were here last week or two weeks ago, we already looked at this, but this is important. Let's look at something that happened in the first year, Okay. First year. So that's found in Second Chronicles 36, verses 22 through 23. All right, we'll put it up on the screens here. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in the first year, using fall of Babylon again as a reference point, the word of the Lord uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. Here's the proclamation that happened in the first year. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever among you is of the people, may they go up, or may the Lord, his God, be with them. May they go up. All right, now, see if I can make sense out of this. Daniel 10, let's go back there, and we're going to connect some dots here. What we just read now, that was year one, right? Now we're coming back to year three of, of Cyrus. In year three, Cyrus issues this, or in year one, Cyrus issues this decree. He says, all right, God has given me all the kingdoms of the world, right? This, the God of the heavens has done that. And if you're from Judah, you guys get to go back. You go build your temple. God told me to tell you this. All right, so that's what he's telling the people of Israel. Now that sounds pretty remarkable from a, from a, a Hebrew perspective. Wow. Our God spoke to Cyrus. Our God said, said Cyrus, you, to Cyrus, you can go back and you, you can leave the exile now from Babylon. You can go back and, and build the temple. So they're probably thinking, this is pretty amazing. Cyrus is with us. But what I encourage you to do is to Google Cyrus Cylinder. This is a real artifact. It dates to the time of Daniel. It dates to the time of Cyrus. It's on display at the British Museum. I encourage you to Google Cyrus Cylinder. Because in the Cyrus Cylinder the people of Babylon are getting the same message for their God, Marduk. They're basically, Cyrus is saying to them, hey, you guys, Marduk has given me the world. And so you can serve Marduk, no problem. You go and you, you serve him. This is what Cyrus would do. He would con- when he'd conquer something, he would say, hey, you guys serve your gods. As long as you guys listen to me, it's all good. You serve who you want to serve. You worship who you're going to worship as long as you fall under my rule. Now, I want to go off on a, just a related side, ta- side note. Someday I'd like to explore this on a full-blown series in what's called spiritual warfare because I think this is all related to that. And what we're about to see here in chapter 10 is a look behind the curtain. Let's jump ahead to verse 12. Verse 12, because I think what Cyrus did by kind of playing both sides here is he may have opened some spiritual doors that he didn't want to open. Now, remember that this word is coming to, um, to Daniel through this heavenly being. So picking up with verse 12, this heavenly being says to Daniel, fear not, Daniel, 
For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, Again, if you ever heard the phrase spiritual warfare, here's a good proof text for you. Much of the conflict that we can see playing out in the realm of the seen is mirrored in the realm of the unseen. The human king of Persia made a decree, right? And yet there's a spiritual prince of Persia that's opposing that decree. In the realm of the seen, what happened is Cyrus made a proclamation and those people, they went, exiles went back to to Judah and they started to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And as they were rebuilding, they got opposition. And the opposition was so strong that they ended up having to stop. They stopped the rebuilding efforts. Well, is it possible that what was happening here was happening on a spiritual and a physical level? That's, that's what it appears to be saying here. That there is the king of Persia who said, you go for it. And then there was a spiritual prince of Persia that was working in opposition to this. And if this were a series devoted to spiritual warfare we'd really walk down this trail in a lot more depth. And we'd ask questions like this. Did Cyrus open up the door to that spiritual opposition? And somehow by by trying to say, I'm going to follow the God of the Hebrews while holding on to these idols and also opening the door to these other spiritual forces, did he somehow open door to this opposition? There's some notes I put in your notes that maybe something you might want to do a little study on this. I wrote down the second Chronicles passage where he says, go for it. You guys go do your thing, Hebrews, with your God. Then I also wrote down Cyrus Cylinder, and I'd encourage you to to look at the content of that. And then I also wrote down some verses here um, where the scripture appears to make some parallel or some connections between idolatry and the demonic. And I put them there so you can look up the context and you can look at these things so it's not just something you're hearing me say. Then I'd encourage you to read the passage we're reading. And then I encourage you to reflect on a really important question. If we do what Cyrus does, and that is to say, we claim allegiance to the God of the Israelites, we claim allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but we hold on to other idols, are we opening the door in our own lives to forces that we don't want to open the door to? Personally, with our families, our schools? Can it happen, can it happen if, if, a, if a leaders in our area, can they open up doors to let these things in? It's just an interesting study that I encourage you to, to possibly take a look at. All right. Do you see how almost anything you look at in the scripture, you can go off and <laughs> on all of these really important things. All right. But there's a few examples here that we've seen. God is king over the seen. He is king over the unseen. In the realm of the seen, especially in past lessons, we've seen that God is able to remove and set up kings. He's able to shut the mouths of lions. In the realm of the unseen, God's messengers can overcome mighty spiritual entities that are assigned to people and empires. So now, with the little time we've got left here, let's spend just a few minutes looking how God is also king over the yet-to-be-seen. And this is fun for me. This is fun for me. This next one here. Let's turn to chapter 11 now. Chapter 11 is filled with these prophecies. And when I've talked about the really specific ones, some of the most specific prophecies are here in Daniel 11. In fact, so much so that it's 
hard to forget that this was written before it happened. And we only have a little bit of time, so I'm only going to look at verses 2 through 6. So imagine how much there would be if you kept going beyond verse 6. All right, take a look at this. The heavenly messenger who reports to the king of the universe says this in verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, and now I'm going to show you the truth. I'm going to show you things that are about to unfold. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Okay, who's king right now? Cyrus, all right? Three more kings are going to arise after Cyrus, and a fourth shall be richer than those three. And when the richer king has become strong enough through his riches, he shall stir up against, or all, against the kingdom of where? Greece. How many have ever heard of King Xerxes, the Persian King Xerxes? Guess what number he was? Fourth. King Xerxes shows up in the book of Esther. King Xerxes shows up in the movie, The 300. King Xerxes is the one who went to war against the Spartans in Greece. Fourth king, he invades Greece, just as it was predicted. Starting with verse 3, picking up with verse 3. Then, after this happens, a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken, divided toward uh, the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, we've already talked about this guy because he's shown up in the other dreams and visions that we've looked at so far in this series. The mighty king of Greece that was to rise, history knows as Alexander the Great. And Alexander, when he died in 323 BC, again, all this is grounded in history. There was a 20-year struggle for succession that ensued. And eventually, it led to a four-way division of his empire among people who were not his posterity. He wasn't related to them. They were his generals. His empire got divided up into four kingdoms led by four of his generals, just as the prophecy predicted. All right, verse 5. Now this gets really crazy. Then the king of the south, the southern kingdom, shall be strong, but one of his princes will be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. All right. The king of the south, his name was Ptolemy, and he ruled this area around Egypt. And he was strong. He was a strong ruler, had a strong kingdom. And the kingdom of the north would have been in reference to this guy, Seleucid or Seleucid, whatever, however you pronounce it. Anyway, he was king of Babylon area, Syria area. Well, one of the other generals, not one of the four, one of the other generals, a guy named Antigonus, he comes in and knocks out Seleucid. So Seleucid has to go down, and he is now underneath Ptolemy. He becomes one of his generals or one of his princes. But it gets as specific as the prophecy here because this gets really interesting. So now he's one of the princes, right? He's his underling. But then they team up. They knock this other guy out of the Babylon, Syria area, Seleucid goes back over there and becomes stronger than Ptolemy. 
And either all of you have heard this before or you're really hard to impress because I think that is pretty amazing. That is not someday there'll be a king and he'll like be kingly and and he'll do stuff and he might make mistakes. Whoa, you know, this is really specific, isn't it? Okay, let me give you one more example because that's all I got today. Daniel 6. This gets even more specific. This is why people say there is no way Daniel wrote this. No way. All right, verse 6. You thought the other one, well, you weren't impressed by the last one. Maybe this one will be good. Verse 6. After some years, kings of the north, kings of the south, they'll make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he, his arm, shall not endure. But she shall be given up and her attendants. Remember that part. He who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. All right, so now we have to fast forward about 40 years. During this period, the kings of the north and the south, they grew weary because they were warring against each other. During the time between verses 5 and 6, history records what it calls to be the first and second Syrian wars, during which the kings of the north, the kings of the south, fought for control of trade routes and ports and the natural resources of Syria. So they've been battling for 40 years. They're like, it is time for peace. It is time for peace. Let's make an alliance. And what was one of the things you would do to make an alliance in those days? You would have some sort of marriage between families. And the king of the south, who do you think he sent to marry the king of the north? His daughter. And so her daughter and her attendants go north. And she marries the king of the north. And they have a son. And things appear to be going well for a little while. Until a former wife of the king of the north said, this is not good because now there's a child here and that means my sons won't become king. So former wife of the king of the north allegedly poisons the king of the north and has the daughter and her son and her attendants murdered. And that same year, the king of the south father of the daughter also dies. Does that sound at all like verse 6? Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. We're only in verse 6, and we're already seeing God has proven himself. If this is true, if this scripture was written before these events happened, then he's proving himself to be the God of the unseen. Which then comes back to what we started with, with this idea of Jesus coming back. Daniel had visions of a day when the Son of Man would come and usher in an everlasting kingdom. And if the God of the seen and the unseen and the yet-to-be-seen says he's coming back, he's coming back. And there's a place to write this in your notes. And we are now going to move into fast-forward mode here, to which God's people said amen. A lot of meaning in a little bit of words. Jesus' first advent secured our salvation. His second advent will sanctify our world. What does all that words mean? The word advent means arrival. It means coming. It means appearing. And when the Son of Man arrived the first time, his appearance, we've said this so many times before, was so dramatic, it divided history in two. Because here comes the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, wherever he was, the kingdom of God came in that little area. And things were as they should have been. 
And people who were sick got healed. And lepers were cleansed. And relationships were reconciled. He called out injustice. He cast out those demons. And Jesus of Nazareth disrupted every funeral he attended. No wonder faithful followers of Jesus like Daniel and Floyd can't wait for his return. Because if the scriptures are accurate on the return, then when he comes back, it won't just be happening in localized areas where Jesus was or where Jesus is working through his people. It's going to happen throughout our globe. Sanctify means make holy. And when Jesus comes back, the world becomes holy. And all that is evil is cast out. And all that's wrong becomes right. Imagine a world that has been made holy by the rule and reign of Jesus. A world where there is no more loneliness, no more separation. A world where everyone has a place at the banquet table and there's no more hunger and no more thirst. A world where there's no more evil, no more injustice, no more terror, no more sickness, no more death. Envision a world where the one true God is the object of everyone's worship. There are those who dive into the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation and they look for clues. You know, and there's some merit to that, I suppose, looking for clues of the identity of the Antichrist. They're looking for clues with um, what are the last seconds of the last minutes of the last hours of the last days. You know, th- there's value to that, I suppose, but I align more with the, the words of the great theologian Muhammad Ali, who says this. He says this, instead of looking for you know, clues or whatever, he goes, live what? Every day. Live every day as though it's your last. Because someday you're going to be right. Live every day like it's your last. Because someday you're going to be right. A pastor, an author named Larry Osborne, he put it this way. He said, I've given up my spot in the program committee. I've given up trying to say, okay, if we do this and this and this, then Jesus comes back or whatever. He goes, I'm trading my spot for the welcoming committee. Welcoming committee. All right, what does all this mean in practical terms? There's a place to write this in your notes. The kingdom of God, it is a present and a future reality. The kingdom of God is something we can enter into right now. As we do the work of Jesus, we do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And in our little tiny places of the world, we try as best we can with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to to help see things become the way they should be. As we reconcile relationships and feed the hungry and clothe the poor and do justice. As we do our best, we see that in a little place. That's happening now but it's also a future reality. And this is the last thing I want to encourage you to write down. Your king in this world will be your king in the next. Isn't that true? If the scriptures teach us anything, they teach us that the king now will be the king in the, in the future. Which then begs the question, who's your king in this world? Or are you trying to serve more than one? You can't serve two masters, the scripture says. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one, despise the other. Possibly what we see here, you might be opening the door by trying to have two to all kinds of influences. Is Jesus Lord of your life? You know, it's interesting. There's a clear connection between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Do you know how the book of Revelation ends? Here's the last two sentences from the Bible. It says this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm what? Coming soon. And then it says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You want to know how to make God king? There's a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Come be my Lord right now. Come rule my life. Come bring to my mind areas where I'm not in alignment with you. Bring to my, help my heart to be in alignment with you. Help my actions to be in line with you. 
where I am trying to have it both ways, Lord, help me to have the power and the strength to, to, to live one life. That's what we do each and every time where we have communion. We, we try to have an opportunity to, to reorient our minds and our hearts and to just say, God, here I come again. As I come to your table, I, I want you to be Lord of my life. I, wanna, I want you to reveal to me where I'm walking another path so I can get on the path that's following you. And it's interesting, the words, of, they're called off in the words of institution as they're talking about Holy Communion. Look at how it ties in both this life and the next. The Lord Jesus is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this now, right now. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But then he says this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in doing this act, we're doing the both and. We're coming right now to say, God, right here, right now, you are my king. Help me to live as a subject of your kingdom. And at the same time, we're also proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes back. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord.